Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 129 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Autumn always brings its own share of challenges, not least the high winds we've been experiencing recently. Coming up, some of my autumnal checks and I'm having another try at making mead. Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I always said that once summer is out of the way, things would start to slow down a little bit, but I seem to be getting busier and busier, and this last week hasn't seen any decline in the jobs that I have to do. Not that I'm complaining, because we've been out recording a few final videos in the apiaries. I'm not sure we'll be opening up any hives between now and the start of next spring. That's for inspections, of course. There will be the winter treatments of oxalic acid, and I'll be keeping a watchful eye on the colonies to make sure they have enough food stores. But for the most part, the inspections really grind to a halt now. As usual, the weather has taken a major part in the week's activities. I mentioned last week that I was off to buy some second-hand kit, and that was actually last Friday. And I couldn't have chosen a worse day, considering the weather that we had here in Norwich. The previous evening, we seemed to have had constant rain, and it didn't let up until I'd finally crossed the Norfolk border into the big wide world on what was Friday afternoon. Us Norfolk folk don't get out that much, and if we get anywhere near the county border, you'll normally see us reaching for our passports. Maybe that's a little unfair, but let's just say that we love being at home. Anyway, the rain stopped as suddenly as it had started the previous day, and within a mile or so of travelling, you'd have thought there hadn't been any rain at all. After a brief stop and discussion about beekeeping, I was loaded up with two of the three items I was looking to buy, the sump and the pump. Unfortunately, the extractor wasn't the 30-frame machine I was expecting, but a 20-frame version. So I already have a 20-frame extractor, so there didn't seem any point in buying a second unit. But the sump and the pump look to be in great condition, if a little sticky with residual honey. It seems no matter how hard you try to clean a bit of kit, there's always a little honey that gets missed. An important point to mention here is that if you do buy any second-hand equipment for your beekeeping, do make sure you give it a good clean in order to reassure yourself that it is actually clean. Then any issues are down to you. Don't go blaming other beekeepers for pests and diseases if you haven't taken the precaution of giving it a damn good clean yourself. Let's face it, no one does the job as well as you, so don't get caught out by thinking it's okay this time. It really is down to you to make sure that that equipment gets really clean before you use it in your beekeeping enterprise. 
I also came away with a nice length of food grade hose for the pump and a neat hose holder that curves to grip the hose in an arc over the settling tank and it points the hose outlet down into the tank so there shouldn't be any spills here at all. Well at least that's what I'm hoping. The hose is also going to need a good clean too but I think it will give me a chance to try out the pump and sump as I can put some washing water into the sump and literally pump it around the hose and back into the sump. A few minutes of that should get everything nicely clean and sterile ready for next season. All that will remain is to get it dry and covered to keep the winter dust off it all and we should be ready for the first crop of honey of next year. Just going back to the collection I'd taken a giant tarpaulin with me to wrap everything up and I'm glad I did because coming back into Norfolk was literally the reverse of heading out dry all the way back until I got into Norfolk and then it started to rain an hour from home and it absolutely piddled down and it didn't really let up for several days after it's quite dry today but it's looking like more rain for when the podcast is released on Friday and into the weekend the biggest issue with the weather this past week has been the high winds quite a lot of trees are still in full leaf and the pummeling they got from the strong winds meant that several branches came down. I'm glad to say that none of the apiaries were badly affected apart from the 14 by 12 apiary where I'd forgotten to strap or weigh down the roofs of a few polyhives and nukes. The result was one poly nuke feeder was full of rainwater and the lid had been blown into the brambles and an almost identical result with the Maysmore 14 by 12 polyhive. Again the roof had been lifted and the feeder filled with rainwater. The bees I'm glad to say were fine but of course with so much rain the water will have filled the feeder and spilled over the feeder lip and down through the brood box area. I did have a quick look and everything seems fine in the brood boxes so it looks like I got away with that one. Feeders recovered and roofs strapped down. The stupid thing is I had the straps with me from the previous visit but I just forgot to sort them. It's almost time to remove the apitraz strips from all the hives. Within the next couple of weeks we'll need to get round all of the hives and get those strips out. It'll also be the same time that we'll remove the feeders I would think. I'm fairly happy with the way the feeding has gone this autumn. We have had a couple left with fondant on and that will probably continue with feeding them the fondant but for the most part the rest of the full-size hives have had a minimum of 14 kilos of heavy syrup. Remember the amount of food each colony will now require is going to vary and some will have stored plenty of honey in the brood box areas prior to that feeding and that's why I love the commercial and Langstroth hives. Plenty of room in the brood box once the brood nest reduces down in the autumn and they can fill that or backfill it with heavy sugar syrup. I was amazed at the top bar hive actually. They really sucked down the sugar syrup once I got the feeder to fit. They've had three kilos of fondant and a full 14 kilogram jerry can of heavy syrup and they're still pulling more fresh comb to continue storing it when I was in there last week. I'll probably take one more look at the feeder area and then remove the feeder before we shut them down completely for the winter. Then it'll be down to the bees to do what they do best and see themselves through the winter months until spring next year. 
Elsewhere, the farm apiaries are a little exposed, but the hives were all strapped down. These are the honeypore hives, so needed the straps or the roofs would doubtless have been blown across the fields. The fishing lakes apiaries are generally well sheltered, including the 14 by 12, which we had the problems in. And although they're surrounded by trees, we didn't have any fallen trees in those apiaries to contend with. The university site is well protected on all sides and the only casualty here was from the previous bad weather, a polynuke with a slightly damaged roof which was subsequently given a heavy concrete offcut from a slab to hold it down in position. Generally I'm pretty happy with the current state of our sites. It's important to keep a regular watch on any locations you have at this time of the year as things can go off-piste quite quickly. Now is definitely the time to batten down the hatches and look ahead to maybe putting on mouse guards and any protection you might need against green woodpeckers. Not for a few weeks as yet, I would hope, but more on that another time. Today's other topic is mead, something I have to say I know very little about. But why let a lack of knowledge get in the way of a bit of autumnal fun? That's what I say. I'm not a complete mead virgin, you understand. And I was reminded about mead by Gemma, one of my local beekeepers who bought some bees off me earlier this year. Gemma popped over to Norwich to drop off a spare nuke box that I'd lent her and we got chatting at an appropriately socially acceptable social distance, of course, about video topics and Gemma suggested mead. What a great idea, I thought. It's been a while since I made the last batch of mead, and unfortunately that ended up being ruined by my lack of attention. That was in fact around eight years ago when we moved house. I had the mead in the previous property's garage, and I'd completely forgotten about it. Some people say that's the best way to make good mead, ferment it and forget about it, but unfortunately I hadn't removed the airlock and the water in the airlock had evaporated away and there was a nice looking carpet of grey-green mould sitting on the surface of the mead. It went down the drain to be honest, I didn't even taste it. So fast forward to today and I'm going to have another bash at making some mead. <laughs> I have a book, I should call it my mead making bible not because i religiously go to it every time i need help but because it sat on the bookshelf for the past eight years unopened suitably dusted down i now have it on my desk and will be reading it avidly over the weekend in order to make it look like i know what i'm doing when i record the video the book was found as a result of scouring many, many second-hand and antiquarian bookshops over hours and hours, and contains some of the very earliest mead recipes known to man. Come to think of it, that's a complete lie. It's a 2009 publication called Mead, Making, Exhibiting and Judging by a guy called Harry Riches, and I bought it online at Northern Bee Books. I'll link all of the book info in the podcast notes so you can get your own copy. It would be fun, actually, if this podcast caused Northern Bee Books to run out of stock of this particular title. So do go get yourselves a copy, if only for the fun of doing that. It's not a complicated book, running at just 80 pages, so it's a light but informative guide to making mead. Now, before we go any further, I'm not looking to exhibit or judge mead, and I'm not entering my mead into any competitions. This is just for a bit of fun 
over the autumn and we'll see what it tastes like at various stages over the coming months and I suspect years as it takes some time to develop a drinkable flavour. Just to say I'm not being sponsored by anyone to promote Harry's book. I bought his book years ago and it's the only book on mead that I have. So there are a couple of things to say about making mead. Get everything spotlessly clean and sterilised. That has to be the number one thing. It seems the biggest enemy for making any beer, wine or mead is probably the germs that sneak in and make the brew go off. Secondly, keep it simple. We don't need to be spending heaps of money here. From what I can see, we need some honey, water, a lemon, some nutrients for the yeast and some special mead yeast that can cope with brewing a powerful head-thumping drink. Not that I'm suggesting that alcohol content is the most important thing here, but if you're going to make your own mead, it may as well be something to remember, or perhaps forget. The bottom line is we can all blame Gemma for encouraging me to give it another go. The plan is to make a simple mead to start with by fermenting it in a honey bucket before transferring it into a demijohn, one of those large glass bottles, and hopefully I can pick some of these up for sale second hand. If not, I thought what I'd do is buy a large bottle of spring water and use the water for making the mead and then use the container that the water came in as the secondary fermentation vessel. Did you notice I got a little bit technical there? Secondary fermentation. More of that in the video because I don't actually know what it means. If you watch the video though and want to give this a go, you're going to need around three pounds of honey per six pints of water. I'll do some conversions for the video, but a gallon is around six and a half pints and a litre is about 1.6 pints. I'll convert everything to litres and grams as the water bottles I'll be buying are bound to be litres, I'm sure. So just a few simple ingredients and then we have to wait. We have to wait and wait and wait. Oh, and you're not going to believe this. I just looked at the book and Harry says the dry mead should be left for a minimum of two years. Okay, so this is going to be a long-term project. There's nothing to stop us from making a few gallons each year and seeing what each batch tastes like. I may need a bigger unit if I'm going to stockpile gallons of mead, but that's a worry for another time. If you are going to join in making some mead, do let me know. I'd really love to share this little project with as many of you as possible. What could possibly go wrong? Don't forget to buy the book and we'll catch up in the video sometime next week. Well, that's it for this week. Links to the relevant information will, as usual, be in the podcast notes. But until next week, I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Yeah.